You know, we're just bringing great stories about the world to our readers. You're listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Travel has been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. But as I've gotten older, and as I've learned more about the industry through my reporting, I've really started to see just how complicated travel can be. So each week, we are diving in to some of the most fascinating and complex topics when it comes to travel. And it's all with the aim of helping you, and let's be honest, helping me, learn to be a smarter, better traveler. Hi there. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 11. My gosh, we are flying through Season 1. It's been such a fun ride so far, and I am thrilled to bring you this episode today. So my guest today is Amy Vership, the travel editor of the New York Times. I was so excited when Amy agreed to be a guest on the podcast. I've been contributing to the New York Times travel section for a few years now, and I've been a reader of the section ever since I was a teenager. So it was a real pleasure to have the chance to get into some really big picture questions with Amy. You'll hear her talk about how travel coverage at the New York Times has been shifting with the pandemic, whether the paper's 36 hours column will ever be revived, and listen up if you'd ever like to write for the travel section because Amy also talks about what she's looking for and what she's not looking for in the pitches that she gets from journalists. So I thought it was really interesting to speak with her Both because, I mean, obviously she gets to shape some of the most widely read travel content out there, but also because she hears so much from readers, and you'll hear her talk about this. I mean, she really has her finger on the pulse of what people do and don't want to see in their travel coverage, what their travel dreams are, and what their concerns are, and how all of that has been changing over time. And on that note, Amy also talks about the travel section's much-loved 52 Places to Go list, and why the 2022 edition is going to look a little different from previous years. But I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet because I want to get straight into this conversation with Amy. So I started off by asking her to cast her mind back to those bizarre and deeply uncertain first couple of weeks of March 2020, when it seemed like the whole world, including of course the whole travel world, was turning upside down. So I asked Amy what it was like to be the travel editor of the New York Times in those early days of the pandemic. You know, it it really felt like there was this gathering storm and you didn't quite know when it was going to hit and you didn't quite know how bad it was going to be. And I think none of us actually thought it was going to be as bad, you know, because your, your mind, I think, constantly reverts to the normal. Um, you know, so it's like, we don't normally have global pandemics uh, that shut the world down. So you were, you know, we were sort of like, okay, it's getting worse. All right. Watching this gather and trying to figure out how to deal with it, both in our personal lives, you know, which of course was very difficult. And then journalistically, how do we deal with this? Um, and then the time shut down for what it said at that moment was two weeks. And I think we all thought, oh, okay, we're going to be back in two weeks. And I think we all thought, oh, travel will be back shortly. You know, it's not going to be 
um, this long-term thing. We're going to get it under control and move on. Um, and so, you know, for a little while you were operating under that delusion while also we were trying to figure out how to help people travel and help people deal with what was going on in travel, which quickly became, how do you deal with travel completely shutting down? How do you deal with everyone's trips being canceled? How do you deal with um, the people who still are traveling? How do you help them travel more safely? Especially at a time when we didn't really know um, how the the virus spread. So, you know, at the beginning, I'm sure you remember, there was a lot of thought that it spread on surfaces, you know, and we did very early on, we did um, a piece um, because Naomi Campbell was famous for cleaning her um, airplane seat even before the pandemic. And, you know, sort of like, okay, you've all laughed at Naomi Campbell, but here's how to clean your, your airplane seat, which Tariro Mizezua did for us which people like ate up because everyone was just searching for like, okay, what's the answer? How do I deal? How do I stay safe? You know, and it just kept kind of accelerating and accelerating um, in terms of what we thought was people's needs. I mean, at what point was the decision made to stop running the kinds of travel promoting articles? I'm thinking of the 36 hours series and maybe other kind of features that are you know, describing destinations. At what point was the decision made to stop running that kind of material? We did that pretty quickly. Um, I would say like after mid-March, I think we stopped running um, 36 hours almost immediately. And then we shifted. There was a definite shift for a while in which we started running um, essays about travel, um, people's experiences with travel in the past. We went through and did a lot of virtual travel. Um, you know, the 50, we did the 52 places virtually, which I think you worked on, right? <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I was one of two on that one. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, that was really fun. So we did, a, a, so there was sort of a period in which we, you know, pulled the plug on the destination pieces um, and really switched to doing service pieces and then the virtual travel. And we did pieces about learning languages um, virtually. And then um, at a certain point that felt like people had done as much virtual as they possibly could. <laughs> and we we backed off on those and continued to try to do just a lot of service pieces, helping people understand how to travel, helping people, you know, figure out how were they going to get a refund? Um, were they going to get a refund? That has been a, a big topic. Um, and then trying to look at some of the issues around travel um, as the pandemic has gone on. And you also got a new role at the New York Times. Can you talk a little bit about what that entailed? Sure. So at, at the same time, we stopped doing the travel section in print. Um, and we we have not gone back to doing a Sunday travel section in print. Um, so we then thought we needed to give readers something. One, we were taking away something in the Sunday paper that, you know, people really love. And then two, um, it felt like we needed to help readers kind of get through the pandemic. So I and a group of other people launched um, what was called the at-home section. The idea of the at-home section was 
really to focus on the pandemic and to say, okay, here we all are. Um, we are to greater or lesser extent stuck at home. And how are we gonna deal with that? And how are we going to negotiate it both in the practicalities of daily life? How do I get my groceries? to your social and emotional health, to your children, how are they um, dealing with um, having to do school remotely. And I think one of the really interesting things about it, and one of the things that I've also taken into our coverage in travel, is that um, we formed a really uh, strong emotional bond with our readers. I don't think I've ever done something that had as much uh, feedback from the readers and the kind of feedback we got was really like, wow, you have seen my life. You are such a help. I appreciate what you're doing so much. Um, really, really like a strong emotional attachment. And I, I really put that to the fact that everybody who was doing the section was living through the exact same thing that the reader was living through. So it was it was actually quite moving. Well, that seems like a fantastic example of the way in which journalism can really respond to readers and provide a service and, you know, fulfill a need and help the readers with a problem they're they're going through. I'd like to ask you how the travel coverage has been changing and how you're responding to what you're hearing from readers. What would they like to see now in their travel coverage? The immediate response that we had was to really um, focus on service and focus on kind of um, helping people navigate the new world of travel. Um, we also did some of the more like reader feedback things. Like we did a 36 hours early on that was um, 36 hours from wherever you are, which was really, really lovely. And people like wrote to us about their their city, their town, their house, um, and we put them together into a 36 hours, um, and they gave us photographs as well. And then actually, when we did the we did 52 places, which is one of our signature things, and we focused again on readers and having them tell us about places that they loved that had made a difference in their lives. So we did some of that where we actually talk to readers about the emotional aspects of travel, their memories, those kinds of things, because I think uh, travel, people do have such an emotional attachment to places that they've been and places that they love. Um, so we tried to harness some of that. Um, but I, I think the major things we've done are was to really focus on service and say to people, okay, this is how you can uh, stay relatively more safe while you are traveling. You know, we did a lot of early on, say a lot of uh, pieces about road trips and how to um, deal with a road trip, how to navigate it, how to, if you were going to fly, if you had to fly, what your expectations would be and what you, you know, how you might keep yourself safer. You know, there's no way to say to people, if you do this, you will be safe. Um, so that's always a line that you needed to walk and need, continue to need to walk. But you could take actions that would make it relatively safer to travel. How to deal with all the disruptions in the travel aid industry, all those kinds of things. So we're really focused on explaining things, explaining what the new rules are. You know, at one point, um, many states within the United States 
had their own rules about if you were going to visit from out of state. So for example, if you wanted to go to Vermont, you had to quarantine, I think it was for 10 days, um, and then get a negative test. Um, and we created um, a list of all the rules um, for all the states, and we kept that updated regularly. Um, we created similar lists for all the countries that you, uh, there was a moment we started a list which was all the countries that you could not go to that had shut down their borders. And we kept that maintained, which was a major, major effort. And then at a certain point it switched and it's now a list of all the places that uh, Americans can go to and what the rules for them going uh, to them are. Um, and those have, you know, we've gotten many, many, many reader um, views of those and people send us notes about them all the time and have really depended on them. Um, to help them decide where they want to go. Yeah, I think the most emails I've ever received about any article I've ever written anywhere was the, I think it was a Q&A about, or something, what Americans need to know about Europe's travel ban. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. I got so many emails from readers and it was so personal, you know, like my fiance is stuck here and how can we meet up? And, um, or, you know, my daughter wants to go here or needs to get back from there. Um, it really seemed like, it was the, this real kind of live wire between the journalism and the people using, you know, what we were producing. You know, we have an email box and we get so many of those all the time. And I try and answer as many as I can. Um, but like sometimes people are just asking the like the most granular, specific question to them. And you're like, you know, I don't actually you know, know in this particular case exactly what the right answer for you is. Um, but people do really look to us for guidance. And and then the other thing that we, so in addition to, you know, trying to give people service, we also then tried to look at what has been the impact of the pandemic on the world um, and how places are dealing with it, um, what it has meant for workers in all over the world who have been out of jobs. Um, and so looking at, at that part of travel, um, travel as an industry and travel as, a, as something that employs people. Um, we've also looked at the issues that have surrounded travel. And you know, in, in various places, I think um, Venice um, is one, Barcelona, as you know, is one, um, Hawaii is another th that we've looked at where um, the question is, what will travel be like after the pandemic? And is this a possibility of some kind of reset, um, some kind of way of taking a pause and then saying, okay, can we do this better? I'm not sure in the end. <laughs> what's going to change, but I think, you know, we, we shall see. I've been very wary of getting too far ahead. And I think the pandemic has taught us that we can't do that. Again, you know, I think whenever we get the hubris of thinking we know what's going to happen, the um, virus reminds us that we do not. Um, so we're trying to balance a, a, somewhere between people do want to travel. I mean, the travel numbers have gone way up for domestic travel in the United States. Uh, we saw something of a bump when um, travel re to the United States reopened, uh, although not 
millions, but you know, the flights also, a lot of flights were canceled. Um, a lot of people may not feel comfortable traveling yet, um, but I think those numbers will all be going up. You mentioned earlier the 52 places list, and I really liked the approach that you took to the list in 2021. I think it was, wasn't it, 52 places to love? I'd like to ask you about, without sort of asking you to go into any detail, really, but the general approach that you're going to take to the 52 places list in 2022 and how that might be different from what you've done in years past. I mean, in years past, it really has been, and, and you know, this is a line where we've also been thinking about how we're walking in general, um, which is we're in such a different world right now than we were two years ago when the, the last time we did a, a regular a regular list. So one of the major things, like if we even just took the pandemic out of it, climate change has come to the forefront and travel's impact on climate change has come to the forefront in a way that I think was building two years ago. But I think that people's realizations and um, conflict over how does travel contribute to climate change uh, are much, much more front of mind. Um, and they're front of mind for us too. Um, so, can you just do a list that says to people, hop on a plane and and go to all these places? I mean, the list, other than having the 52 places traveler who did go to all the places, the purpose of the list was never, you should go to all of them. It was, here are places you might consider going and, you know, pick some of them if, if you're interested or just do armchair travel, which is, I think, what most people did. Okay, so climate change has become much, much more front of mind, then you have the pandemic. And even if, you know, in the United States and Western Europe, we have most people vaccinated and our numbers are going down, there are large parts of the world where people are not vaccinated. And you have to think about, okay, what would be the impact of, you know, travel reopening there in a, in a large way. I mean, I think it would be, there are good things and bad as we know people have lost their jobs and we've written this. Um, so how do you balance that? Um, how do you just balance people's general reluctance to get on a plane and go somewhere far flung now? So we're, we're kind of thinking about all those elements. Um, and we're really decided to focus on that a traveler could be part of a solution somewhere as opposed to being part of a problem. Um, so that you might support an effort at conservation somewhere, or you might support an effort to save an indigenous culture or to uh, you know, uh, bring greater appreciation to artwork, that kind of thing. So it's much more focused on kind of um, supporting and appreciating the world and a little bit less on like hopping on a plane to a beautiful beach. Um, so there, you know, there will be some beautiful beaches. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And I think that's really in keeping with, I don't know, a shift in mindset that a lot of us have had, you know, travelers and travel writers and just people in general, you know, when we think about the way we used to move around the world before the pandemic and how we're doing it now and how we'll do it in the future. And I think everyone, I don't know, maybe, you know, I think a lot of people are hoping to take a more kind of mindful or considerate approach to their travels. So um, it's exciting to hear that the list will take that kind of approach for 2022. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to, we can't just 
continue doing what we've been doing in the past. Obviously, the world has changed, and it's changed in ways we won't even know, right? We'll figure them out as they go along. Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that the travel section stopped appearing in the Sunday print edition pretty early on in the pandemic, and that it hasn't really come back. I think where there may be one or two sort of exceptional... Yes, we've done some special issues. So we did, for print, we did the... um, 52 places as a print section. And we we did a special um, issue right around the time of the anniversary of the pandemic called A Year Without Travel, which was really wonderful and looked at um, places around the globe and how they had been affected by uh, the shutdown. And that one won a big award recently, is that right? Um, Yes, that won um, Society of American Travel Writers Award, yep. Do you think, I mean, I guess it's hard to foresee, as you're saying, But can you imagine the travel section appearing in print again in the future? Or do you think it'll be an online, you know, an an online sort of section with occasional special issues? Yeah, I think that's where we are uh, for the moment. We're actually, um, we may get more of a print presence in the paper, um, in the daily paper. um, But I think we're not going to come back as a standalone print section on Sunday, um, at least anytime soon. Um, so, but one of the things that's interesting, of course, is that, you know, the Times has um, millions and millions of digital subscribers. And the fact is that most people don't read the print section anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm raising my hand. That's me. I can't get it delivered where we live. Um, So, I mean, and that raises all kinds of issues about like, you know, sort of what is a section, not to get too um, epistemological here or whatever, but, you know, it's like, um, do people even know on some level that they're reading a travel story? So, for example, one of the things that we have um, instituted during the pandemic is this wonderful series called World Through a Lens, um, which is uh, we take a photographer's portfolio of a place um, and we have the photographer write an essay about, you know, how they started shooting there, what the, you know, what the reasons for the project were, what they discovered, that kind of thing, and so what it means to them, and then we give them these beautiful displays online. Um, and it, it has been one of our most popular um, series during the pandemic. Um, and they're great, I love them. Um, and they really each week give you a window into some place and the, the, either just the landscape and the beauty of the landscape or the cultural goings on or you know rituals, festivals, all kinds of wonderful things. Um, and um, But when people see those, I'm not sure that they know that they're travel, you know, quote unquote, travel stories. Um, they're just really great photo essays. <laughs> um, so, you know, what does that mean? And I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but, you know, like, what does that mean for travel coverage in particular? And, you know, I I guess for me, I I don't think that's such a bad thing in part because I don't necessarily, I've been a journalist for a really long time and I don't necessarily think of myself foremost as a travel journalist. I think of myself as a writer and editor 
who works with other writers and editors and like doesn't necessarily put them in the niche of travel. Um, you know, we're just bringing great stories about the world to our readers. Yeah, I think that's fantastic, to be honest. And I can think of two or three of my recent stories that I think have run in print in the business section. And, you know, I think it just goes to show that this concept of travel maybe doesn't really belong in a box, you know, in any case, it really has so many ties and so many impacts on the economy, on the art world, you know, sports, you know, breaking news, foreign news. I mean, it's really such a cross-cutting kind of theme anyway. So maybe it's liberating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, and you know, we have uh, articles that run in the um, in international section, in the US section. I mean, they, in print, they've been all over the place. Um, and I think there is, the, the one thing that's harder to do in that kind of context is the pure destination story, you know, this is a beautiful place and I went and had this experience. And and we are coming up with a solution for those that's going to be in the daily paper. Yeah, that reminds me, I wanted to ask about, I mean, I think, I think the 36 hours column, which was running for a long time before the pandemic was something that the travel section was really known for. Can you foresee that returning anytime soon? Um, yes, I don't know about anytime soon, but 36 hours, I think, uh, will come back. We're going to try and figure out how to maybe reconceive it a bit to be more digital first, because, you know, now, you, you know, when people travel, I'm picking up my phone here, um, like, that's how they travel, right? Um, they look at their phone and they have all their documents on their phone and they have their maps on their phone. And so, and 36 hours, I think is a great, great column. I go back to it all the time. I actually, I've just been on two recent trips and on both of my trips, I consulted 36 hours, but like, how do you make it less about that page in the paper and more about interacting on your phone with the column and with the information. So that's, we're going to look at that, but I, it will definitely come back. Yeah. I have to say, um, you know, that's how I broke into writing for the New York times. So interested to see how it, how it evolves, but you also mentioned before about how readers are more readers are becoming more aware of the climate impacts of their trips. And I know that that's something that you as an editor have become aware of and are, um, have taken some steps within the section to reduce the carbon impact of the reporting trips. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done? Yeah, uh, you know, our major thing has been that we we buy carbon offsets. Um, so whenever anybody travels for us now, any staffer um, travels for us now uh, uh, and flies, we purchase carbon offsets for them. Um, and, you know, I know carbon offsets are much debated and, you know, do they really do anything in the end. I, I think that's an open question, but I felt like we should at least um, take that step. And, um, you know, it, it would, even if it was mostly symbolic, at least we were doing that and we could say, um, okay, we, we're cognizant of this. We're trying to deal with it. And this is our first step. Um, I think one of the other things in general, though, is also that we, we've, and this is not just about climate, but also about kind of authenticity. Um, I've tried to use more people who live in a place to write about a place, um, and especially say on 36 hours. 
Um, and one of the reasons for that is, is one, they're not traveling, so there's, there is less climate impact, um, but also because, um, you know, they bring a depth of knowledge that I think uh, is really valuable. And, you know, so years ago, <laughs> when people were not as connected, if you wrote anything, not just the 36 hours, but anything about, let's say, Chicago. So I have, you know, I don't know Chicago well. I jet into Chicago. I'm the travel writer. I spend a weekend there and then I write a story and we publish it. And, you know, chances are that people in Chicago never saw it right? Because it was in the New York Times. And maybe some people in Chicago got the New York Times, but most people didn't. Um, and even if they did, and they thought we got something wrong or mischaracterized their city, they would, you know, maybe send a letter to the editor, which maybe we would publish two weeks later, right? Because it takes that one. Now, if I publish a piece about Chicago that people in Chicago don't like, we hear about it in about 10 seconds <laughs> and they are tweeting it out and they are commenting online and they are telling us very clearly what they think. Um, you know, and I think we have to, you know, it, I just, it's not just that I don't want them to post bad comments, but I want our pieces to be as rich and authentic as possible. And, you know, I think, there's a truth to that. If you jet into someplace, often your your takeaway is going to be fairly superficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, um, I felt really privileged to be able to write over the summer uh, a story about my hometown where I lived from age zero to 18, which is Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, in this sort of, oh gosh, I forget what the series was called, but summer, summer in the City or something, but what to do this summer. And um, yeah, it was so... It meant so much to me to be able to write that about places that I grew up going to and some newer places as well. And um, yeah, if I had seen somebody come in for sort of, you know, a weekend, like you say, to write that about my hometown, I would feel, yeah, I don't know, I would have a stake in that. So I appreciate that you're looking for local people to contribute stories more and more. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also, there's always room for, you know, the journey and going and, and seeing someplace new and writing about it in a meaningful way. But um, I think especially on, on things that aim to be really servicey and tell people like what to do as opposed to trying to kind of give a narrative that may be emotional or um, intellectual. Um, I think using local people can be a real boon. Absolutely. Um, I'd also like to ask you about some of the ethics of travel writing and travel journalism. Could you explain for anyone who's not familiar with it, what the policy is of the New York Times on things like free trips or free hotel nights, that kind of thing? So the Times has had a long standing policy um, that we do not take free trips. Um, and people may not, who are listening may not know that there is, it's a, it, it's a done thing in the travel world that people take free trips and free accommodations um, and then write articles about the places they have been. Um, and the Times position has been you cannot do that. I personally don't think it serves the reader to do that. 
And I, it also tends to channel, you know, there are reasons why you will suddenly read, you know, 10 articles about a given destination and a given hotel. And it's because a lot of people got a free trip there. Um, I mean, at bottom. Now, a lot of places will put a line uh, at the end of a piece or at the top of a piece saying, you know, this article was supported by, you know, whoever the hotel was, whoever the destination was, um, and say, that, okay, that's that's fine. And then a lot of the people who take these trips say, I can be objective, even though I'm getting lots of nice freebies. And, you know, I just, I, I question that. Um, and so I think it's better off not to take anything. So we don't take the trips and we don't work with the freelancers who do take the trips. And now there's been some question raised to me about equity and about the idea that, um, you know, it's expensive to be a travel writer. How do people from, um, you know, communities that may not have access break into travel writing uh, if they cannot take these freebies? And I think, you know, that's something we have to deal with, but I don't think the answer is to, like, just take free stuff. <laughs> I mean, do you know how many other media outlets have a similar position? I mean, I used to write regularly for the travel section of the Washington, Washington Post, and at least when I was writing for them, they had a similar policy. But are those kind of exceptions or, you know, how many newspapers and magazines are forbidding those types of free trips? Yeah, you know, I don't actually know the answer to that. I, I think the Post remains one. The Wall Street Journal, I think, is also the same. Um, but I don't really, you know, I, I, I don't keep track of exactly who, you know, who has what policy. Yeah, but I mean, it, it seems like a minority, probably. I, I think it's dwindling. Yes, a minority, a minority. I mean, it is expensive. And, you know, one of the things is that, okay, so we don't write like the, you know, $20,000 um, Antarctic cruise story. Um, or if we do, it, we do it because we have a, somebody who's going on that trip anyway and who wants to write about it for us. Um, you know, and like, I think that's okay because in part, you know, I, I think our audience, there's a very, very small sliver of our audience that is actually gonna go on that trip. Um, and I think when we have the opportunity, I think people do wanna know about those trips sometimes. Um, and so that, we can do them by having somebody who's already going write about it. Well, I think, like you say, it's important that readers kind of know when they're being fed content that was sort of sponsored to some extent or another. And, um, you know, so that they can at least make that decision or at least keep that in mind. And I think, you know, a lot of places aren't upfront about it. I think a lot of listeners might, it, it might come as a surprise to a lot of listeners to hear that, um, there are a lot of sort of free trips happening in the in the industry. But I mean, you know, it makes me think of obviously restaurant reviewers aren't getting free meals and, you know, book reviewers aren't getting free books. And um, well, book reviewers are getting free books. Oh, are they? Yeah, oh, gosh. Yes. So book <laughs> reviewers get free books. Restaurant critics, at least at the Times, do not get free meals um, and they do it anonymously. Um Book reviewers do get free books, um, but they're, I mean, mostly they're handed through the 
like they send they send the book to the Times and then the book sends the the Times sends the book to the um, reviewer. Uh, I would say the one area that's different and like and like why this is okay, you know, it's a question, um, is that theater reviewers do get free theater tickets. Oh, interesting. Um, interesting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and like why, you know, I, I will admit that there is a, you know, internal inconsistency there, but I, you know. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting to draw. I mean, that kind of leads me to my next question, actually, in that um, I know that you've worked for a lot of different sections of the New York Times, and I'm curious to hear what about your position as travel editor is, you know, what about that position stands out for you or what's more challenging or more rewarding or just kind of, yeah, I don't know. How is this position different from what you've done in other sections of the paper? Um, so, yeah, so I actually, well, when I came to the paper, I worked for a uh, a section that focused on um, domestic travel and real estate called Escapes. And then I worked on the culture desk and then I worked on Metro um, and uh, now I'm here on travel. And I, I think the, the common thread in all those is that I'm always looking for kind of the great narratives um, and the great stories that can be told. Um, so whether it's, you know, in culture, whether it's in Metro, um, you know, wonderful stories about New York City, um, or now wonderful stories about the world. So I think that's really kind of the, the common thread. I mean, for in travel, I think one of the things that's different is really the relationship to the reader, because people really are using your uh, what you write in a different way than um, they are in any of those other places. I mean, I guess like if theater reviews, people do use your theater review to decide whether they want to go to a play or not, but it, it still feels a little different to me. Um, and so I, I think that relationship to the reader and the kind of responsibility to the reader to make sure that um, you are presenting the world correctly um, and in as much depth and nuance as you can um, is a little different for um in travel. Um, and I do feel that responsibility to the reader. And that's, I think that is part of the no free trips thing that I want to be able to say to the reader, like, this is our honest opinion um, about a place. This is our judgment. This is, um, you know, not sullied by any outside um, elements. Absolutely. So you talked a bit before about the 52 places list for 2022, but I'd like to ask you, what else can we expect from the travel section next year? <laughs> well, I think we have to ask first, what can we expect from the coronavirus um, next year? But um, I think we are, you know, we're kind of right now tiptoeing back into destination coverage and figuring out, okay, how can we, where can we send people or, you know, where can we write about that people might feel comfortable going? We don't want to get too far ahead. Um, and, but no, neither do we want to be, you know, laggards. So trying to figure out, okay, where can we write about? What destinations can we write about? How can we start getting back into that kind of coverage because people clearly do want to travel 
Um, I want to travel. I've, I've actually started traveling again. So, um, you know, and, and, but finding a balance that we don't want to, you know, leap in too quickly, because one of the things is we've assigned, you know, I have pieces that we've assigned where like suddenly there'll be, you know, like the fourth wave is, seems to be happening in, in Europe. So, like you don't want to send write a piece that says, oh, you know, go to Austria <laughs> um, when people might want to think twice about it. Um, so it's really, but I, I see us tiptoeing back into that kind of destination coverage and, and kind of reopening the world um, a bit more. Yeah, that actually um, makes me think of another question that I've asked myself sometimes in writing articles. I mean, especially the 36 hours pieces, but otherwise, as you know, in other cases as well, to what extent do you think readers are using articles as actual sort of real pieces of service journalism that they're going to sort of pull up on their phone and use to choose a restaurant or something? And to what extent are they using it as armchair travel, you know, a little mental escape? I mean, I think it really depends on the piece. I think the 36 hours very much are used. And I would say, you know, places that we write about would tell you that, you know, people come in either with it on their phone or, you know, ripped out of the paper or printed out, whatever, um, you know, because I know I've done that. So I think the 36 hours are very much used. Um, I think anything that's kind of very listy and specific and like, you know, this five great places to go in X city. I think those get used very, people follow those a lot. Um, then the, the more kind of um, destination pieces, armchair pieces, I think a lot of those are, you know, some of them might inspire trips. Some of them, you know, people read them and go, you know, gosh, I really want to do that. Um, and I'm going to book tomorrow. But I think a lot of them are are more armchair and more appreciative of the writing. And, the, you know, one of the things we've tried to do, or I've tried to do is, we don't do a lot of pieces of just like, I went here on vacation and had a great time. <laughs> I mean, that's very, that's, you know, um, unsophisticated, but we try to make sure that e even when we're writing a destination piece, that it has an idea um, to it. Um, so, like one of the one of the pieces I've loved, this is pre-pandemic that we did, was we had somebody who walked the periphery of Paris. He actually walked the um, like the very edge of the the border of Paris to see what, because everybody knows, you know, the center of Paris and knows the Louvre and, you know, Notre Dame. And uh, even though that's now being reconstructed, but, you know, they kind of know the center, but like, how about the edge of Paris? What's the edge of Paris like? Um, and I think that was a wonderful piece. And like, do I think many people went and walked the edge of Paris? No. <laughs> Um, but it maybe gave them a new way of looking at Paris. And maybe there was one, you know, maybe he mentioned one thing in there that they would, and the next time they were in Paris, they'd say, oh, I want to go to that neighborhood because it was mentioned in this piece. Um, you know, or um, similarly, we did a piece about um, a town, uh, about Amatriciana in Italy, which was actually, um, 
uh, Amatrice was destroyed by a, uh, an earthquake. And we did a, a, a piece about a guy cooking, um, you know, uh, pasta Amatriciana and going back there and looking for the, the true recipe. Again, did a lot of people go to that one spot? I don't know. I think that was more kind of armchair, but it was delightful and gave you new appreciation for a place that had been very damaged. Oh, fantastic. And um, yeah, just one final question. And I apologize if this one is slightly self-interested, but um, what types of pitches are you looking for <laughs> for 2022? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I, I think I'm looking for pitches that... Um, take the pandemic into account. Like I still am getting my inbox, which is always overflowing, but I still get a lot of pitches that seem like the pandemic never happened. And I'm like, hmm, I don't quite get that. So I, I think I'm looking for pitches that like take the pandemic into account and try and explain a, a place in light of what has happened in the last two almost two years now, um, you know, and try to reintroduce us to a place. And I feel like every story we do, if you read right now, there is a, some section of it that says, you know, this is what happened here during the pandemic and this is how it's changed. And this is what you need to take account of. Cause I think we, we owe that to our readers to um, help them understand how places are going to be different if they go to them. Um, you know, and they're not, it's not insurmountable. I actually, I said I had started to travel again and I went to Italy, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, and it, it was different than it's ever been before. I, uh, had to show my vaccine card everywhere and I had to wear my mask and I had to get tested to come back to the United States, but you know, it, it was doable and it was beautiful and we had a great time and I saw wonderful things. So, um, you know, just trying to help people through whatever their travel experience is going to be is kind of our mission. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your experiences and your work. Um, it's been a great conversation. No, oh, thank you, Paige. It's been great to talk to you and uh, I appreciate your having me on. Hi there, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amy Vership. I have to say, I was fascinated to hear her ask that question, you know, what is a section? Because what is travel writing, really? I mean, in so many cases, there are so many overlaps with other sections of the paper, which, you know, is, I think, what makes that kind of writing so interesting. But Amy hinted in our conversation that some content from the travel section might appear in the print edition of the paper again soon, and then, about a week after we recorded the interview, she announced on Twitter that every Monday, the print edition will be including one of those transporting destination stories that she talked about. So look out for that. So I'm going to add a bunch of links in the show notes for you, including to last year's 52 Places to Love list, the Circumnavigating Paris article that Amy mentioned, and a couple of the old 36 Hours stories if you want to check those out. And I'm going to unlock all of those stories for you, which means that the links will work for two weeks and you'll be able to read them all, even if you don't have a subscription to the New York Times. So that is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much again to Amy Vership for taking the time to speak with me. I hope you will come back next week for the final episode of season one. 
My guest next week is none other than American travel legend Rick Steves, who I interviewed for the New York Times about a month ago. Rick Steves is now coming on the podcast. We're going to be talking about why he thinks travel is so essential and how he's trying to make sure that travel is a force for good in the world. And he's going to be joined by Craig Davidson, who's the chief operating officer of his tour company. And Craig's going to talk about the company's work on climate change. So come back next week for that. Season one is going out with a bang. You don't want to miss it. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Artemis Irvin is our producer and social media editor, and Jessica Danheiser composed our score. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.